Hello and welcome back. It's been Yomin Rose and myself, Gedalia Guttentag, with Mishpacha's home front, a wide angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. Shavuotov. Good to be back here. So we have watching over Friday, we had the ominous kind of spectacle of the law, of the lawfare now underway, underway against Israel in The Hague, which is, you know, the International, international Courts of Justice, a UN institution, and the case has been brought against Israel by South Africa. South Africa are accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. And you know, if this wasn't so sad, this would, if it wasn't so ludicrous, it would be, it would be comic, comical because we, because South Africa is a country, basically a, a shadow of its, of its former self. Uh, By the way, I, I call it a failed state, but we can call it a country. Okay. A failed state. This is a country that, that can't keep its the electricity on. They can't keep the lights on. That is, uh, I, you know, I was talking to multiple people there recently. You can, you find it very hard to do a, a, a WhatsApp call with, with them because there is such intermittent power. And this is talking about, you know, and, and internet connectivity in a place like Johannesburg. So this is a, this is a country is a corrupt joke that closes up to the Sudanese leadership that hosts Tehran, that hosts, that has, uh, you know, Hamas has operated there, been on very friendly terms with them for the last 15 years. And they have the kind of the. You know, they have the guts to, to, to come along and say, to come along and accuse Israel of genocide. So obviously this is a joke, but it's, Benjamin, it's, it's a damaging joke. It's a classic attempt of lawfare, which is an attempt to defeat Israel in the courts where it can't on the battlefield. And it's, it's very potent because, because the, they can, the, uh, you know, run, running on the fumes of Nelson Mandela, South Africa still has, for some reason, kind of, kind of a phantom credibility in terms of in human rights terms. And, and, and the Western, Western, Western democracies take the, what the UN says far too seriously. They view it as, as gospel and, and therefore, and therefore this has led, led to a situation where Israel, which is protecting itself from murderous terror is, is finds itself arraigned in the, in the courtroom and defending itself. And so, and so that, that is a sad spectacle, Benjamin. What I found interesting is that you mentioned Nelson Mandela, that they're still riding the backs of Nelson Mandela. Today is Martin Luther King Day in the U.S., and it's like people who are still trying to say that, let's say, black Jewish relations or black right relations are the way they were in the days when Martin Luther King was around. And it just aren't. It's moved on for uh, the last uh, 40, 50 years, and uh, it's got much worse. And the same thing in South Africa. Nelson Mandela, a lot of people, especially the Jewish community in South Africa, would give rave reviews to. But the people who've taken over since then, it, it's a corrupt country, as you mentioned. Unemployment is 30, 35%. And I, I took one trip there many years ago when I interviewed uh, Rabbi Tanzer Zatzal. Many people still remember that article. I think the Jews of South Africa are fantastic. When we made Aliyah to Rehovot in 1993, that was Mandela took over. And the South African Jews were afraid of what was going to happen. And many of them were moving to Rehovot at the time, where we made Aliyah to. And we had a nice South African community there. I used to quip at the time, and I still say it, that if all the Jews were as uh, polite and courteous as the South African Jews, the Mashiach would be here. <laughs> I mean, I really feel bad for the people who, uh, for the Jews who are living there, because to live in a country that's so hostile, uh, is, is, is very difficult. And uh, I would say, though, that the one silver lining in the cloud is that Germany came across and said that they're going to defend Israel. And they think that also the genocide charges are ridiculous. I'm not sure that uh, that's going to make a difference in the final vote. 
However, the fact that the U.S. is on Israel's side, and now Germany has come out very strongly on Israel's side, can certainly mitigate any fallout from whatever decision is made. You know, but we already mentioned South African Ravon, and so we have Robert Warren Goldstein, current chief rabbi of South Africa, and he's been very vocal. Been his words, his his words have got a lot of traction. He's got up and said that that the that the challenge his own country's leadership, and he's he's called for this is a, this is a thinking moment for the West for for you know countries, liberal democracies, who can obviously see the extent to which the dictatorships are manipulating manipulating this 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 forum, the the United Nations. So this is a moment in which we can, should be a turning point in which Western democracies no longer give them any sway over their, over their, over their doings, meaning that they can vote all they like, but ultimately knowing that it's being, that the United Nations has been so thoroughly corrupt and compromised, this should be a moment when they step back and say, and say any, any of the, any of the tools of the, of the, of the United Nations, the, the ICJ, the, as the International Courts of Justice, etc., should have no binding power over um, democracies, they should feel under no moral pressure to conform to their to, to their decisions, which are which one hundred percent corrupt. And I, I, I think, I think this. I don't know if this is a, a moment in which a Western democracies actually wake up, but at least it 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 could become a process. And but you know, I wonder whether whether if come November or come next January, you have a new Trump administration, which the Trump administration first round. Gave, gave, you know, sent Nikki Haley to the United Nations, where she, where she, where she was very, very active, and they were active in defunding some of the the, the those organ, uh, organs that deal with Israel, for example, UNRWA, which has been, which has been, it's, it's, it's the shocking, the shocking extent of its of its compromise in Gaza, in which UNRWA teachers were busy there, you know, texting about exalting Israel's downfall on October the seventh, and and all the stuff found. In, in their schools and in their clinics and etc. This is an organization that needs defunding, needs sh- shutting down, and they should have nothing more to do with it. And I think there may be a horizon. If we do see another, another Trump administration, they've got the work cut out for them. Yeah. I'd like to see, even if there's another Biden administration or Democratic administration, I'd like to see them come to the same conclusion as well. Probably less likely, but it's what needs to be done. And speaking of corrupt institutions, let's, let's segue over to the Palestinian Authority because the U.S. and some other countries are still trying to foist the two-state solution on Israel, and uh, even more so than ever. It's coming to a head right now over a very local issue. It's the issue of foreign labor and uh, where Israel is going to get that foreign labor from. So just to give some short background, the construction and farming industries here are at a standstill. There's not enough workers. We've talked about it before that there are crops rotting on the vine, buildings that are standing, I wouldn't say vacant, but there's no construction workers. I know in the neighborhood I live in Yerushalayim, there's a lot of construction. And to try to find one worker there who's doing anything, you just can't. So one of the solutions that's been proposed is to let Palestinian workers back in. Maybe not in the same numbers as before, but there's talk about allowing 5,000 in on a trial basis. And the proposal would be to have security escorts back and forth, and there would be no freedom for the workers to move around or to relate to Jewish residents when they're here. And then at the end of the workday, they would be escorted back and uh, always under uh, guard. I personally think that that's probably not practical, but let's just, uh, let's just leave that idea out there for a minute. So Yoav Gallant, who's the defense minister, is for it. Not only, I'm sure he thinks it's a good idea for the economy, but uh, he and many other of the heads of the security establishment say that if the Palestinians don't have jobs pretty soon, 
that uh, they're going to revolt and there will be a new intifada and that we'll be facing uh, a second front in Judea and Samaria, as if we're not already, but they say it'll get worse. There are other organizations such as the INSS, which is a think tank at Tel Aviv University, which agrees with the U.S. that we need a robust aid package in order to reform uh, the Palestinian Authority so they could possibly take over in Gaza one day and maybe even get control over the areas that they have control over in Judea and Samaria. Now, that's one side. The second side I, was expressed well by Nir Barkat, who's the economy minister and a member of the Likud. And he went after Gallant and he said that you are locked into the October 6th Concepcia. You still think that we can buy peace by giving them jobs. Barkat said, we are not responsible for the economy of the Palestinian Authority. We can't afford the security risk. And if we need laborers, so let's import them from uh, China, let's import them from uh, Thailand, from Romania, like we used to, or to increase Jewish labor. So those are the two uh, sides of the issue. And I already gave my opinion as to uh, what I think. But what I wanted to say overall is that it's important that we have debate and discussion over these issues. And it's important not to stifle that debate. And Gedalia, what I've seen many times in the last three months is that one side is trying to stifle the other. On one side, they're saying, we have to have achdus, we have to have unity. And we're still pretty much holding together. Uh, but you're starting to see a lot of cracks in that unity. And a lot of it comes, especially, I've noticed that when the right-wing MK speak up, when people like Bitsalo Smotrich or Itamar Ben-Gavir express their opinion, so the left, uh, especially the media, tries to stifle them. I, I think it's wrong to stifle any legitimate debate. Again, I don't agree with you, Avgalan's position, uh, but he is the defense minister and we have to take it seriously and we need serious debate on it. And there's a lot of people that don't agree with Nir Barkat, but it doesn't make a difference. Barkat has a point and we need an open debate and we need to come to a decision. And then finally, whatever decision is made by the people who have the authority to uh, make it, right? So we have to live with and uh, pray that it's going to work out. But again, stifling debate is one of the worst things that you can do. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that, and I, and I agree that the stifling, generally speaking, comes from one uh, one very specific side of the political spectrum. I I, 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 I would say that I would slightly disagree with Nir Barakat in the sense that morally speaking, he's correct that that we have that we have no none of this you know this kind of highfalutin moral responsibility that that that, that because secular elites come and say that we have we have you know we're we're somehow morally responsible for the Palestinians. That's not true. I think there's two issues. Manpower can be solved. We have to look at this. And, and when I first came to Mir, it, the, 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 I noticed that, that the book about the Romanians, there was all these, no, you know, there was the, these coat hooks with Romanian or Eastern European names on those, the workers of Mir, they got, they got phased out. That is an interior ministry decision. And the employment, therefore, of, of, of Palestinian labor in the economy in, in, in the tens and hundreds of thousands, that is a, that is an, a decision that could be t t taken by government fiat to change. I think, though, the idea that, that, the, that we have no responsibility for what's going on, I don't think that's true in the West Bank. That's, that, that's simply not true. Morally, we want nothing to do with it. Morally, we cannot, just, we ca we cannot be expected to, 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 to look after a society that is as corrupt and sick as theirs. But... But practically, we do in the sense that this that there's no there's no clean neat division between the West Bank and the and the rest of Israel. It is enmeshed. Their economies are enmeshed with ours. Their roads are enmeshed with ours. 
and and therefore the idea that we can that 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 and and that, and the idea that what happens there that won't affect us if we just slam these non-existent doors on them. The, if, if 150, 300,000 workers cannot bring bread home, that will come back to roost on us. That will that will impinge on our security. And so therefore, let's look at this not as a, a moral issue. There is no moral issue. We owe them nothing. But as a practical issue, I have to take Joab Galant's words seriously. That what? If you create too much of an economic pressure cooker in the West Bank, it can explode. And not. And I, I don't see this as wholly as... The conceptia, Benjamin. The conceptia of this kind of pre pre war thinking is, in terms of moral terms, it's like we have to worry about the poor Palestinians because we're oppressing them. That is utter and total nonsense. But as a practical matter, I I'm take just it not serious. sure there's a practical difference between whether we have a moral obligation or whether it's a practical obligation. At the end of the day, how many workers are going to come in? How are they going to be supervised? Who's going to be responsible for security? And then is it really going to make a difference in their lives or not? Uh, you know, why don't uh, we send them to Syria to help reconstruct Syria? Why don't we uh, send them over the Allenby Bridge to Jordan and let them do some construction there? Uh, again, the whole idea that Israel always has to be responsible for this, I think, goes back to the idea that somehow we're an occupying power, we're the bad guys, and that we've caused all the problems, and therefore we're, we're the ones who are responsible for doing something about it. Again, it's a great debate. There are pros and cons on either side. Again, it, it, if Palestinian workers do come back in, so there has to be ironclad security. And who's going to uh, provide that? And uh, at what ratio of uh, soldiers or Mishmar Agavul uh, to workers? And uh, how is it going to work uh, on the field? Uh, these are all uh, very important questions that have to be ironed out in advance. Because at the end of the day, I think they are going to come back in, in some numbers. And uh, we have to be prepared for that uh, in more ways than one. Yeah, I mean, um, talk about open questions. Let me just raise something which is very troubling, which is which is what's happening in the north. We had the we had in the last few days, last week, the army and the kind of powers that be messaging that that the IDF is distancing the Radwan force from the border. The Radwan force being Israel, being Hezbollah's elite uh, attack force, like like the equivalent of Hamas's murderous Nukhba, and and that was the messaging. And and I mean, it, I'm I'm very distrustful of this type of gung ho type of stuff, which is. And yesterday we saw there overwhelming evidence that that is just utter and total nonsense. We in 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 Val in the in what was known as the Galilee pan, Panhandle on the northern border, there was a, there was deployment of Hezbollah deployed an anti tank missile, killed a woman of seventy six years old and her son who who is still back there. He's a member of the Kitat Konunut, which is the local defense squad. They're meant to remain, remain behind. And she is obviously his mother. They were killed in anti-tank missile, and they, this was an attack. And this was the, these these missiles are lethal. They can be guided, pinpoint guidance, and and this is what's happened over there. And Benjamin, I think I think the farmers up there who are remaining, and many are remaining, are saying we're sitting ducks. And and my question is, I think there needs to be far more public debate and far more public pressure on the government saying we need to act in some way. Because it's not Hezbollah that's deterred. It's patently untrue to say that, that they are being distanced from the border. Israel, Israel, is Israel that's deterred. deterred if anything, they might you know, possibly be distancing themselves in order to set us uh, a trap, which could be very deadly. So we have to be very careful. I've been kind of quiet about the North. I'm not really advocating that we go out uh, full force and start another front for a variety of reasons. Also because uh, Hezbollah is a much more a stronger foe with the much more devastating destructive potential that they have. 
in this case, I think the government is right in trying to come up with some sort of a political solution if they possibly can. Uh, on the other hand, the one that envoy, U.S. envoy Amos Hochstein proposed is not going to work. He, he looks at this as a border dispute and that if Israel gives back Gajar, which is a, uh, a mixed village in the north to Lebanon, and if we just give up Hardov, which happens to be the place where God made the covenant with Avram Avinu, uh, known as the Brit Bain Habitarim or Bris Bain Habitarim, depending on whether you have Sephardi or Ashkenazi pronunciation. One of the most historic, important historic sites in the Jewish history. And uh, the idea of, oh, if we just give that uh, to Lebanon, that uh, uh, maybe Hezbollah will play nice. It's not going to work. Just like when uh, Lapid and uh, Bennett, when they were uh, prime minister and assistant prime minister, they under uh, the auspices of uh, Amos Hochstein, uh, decided to cede a lot of uh, Israel's exploration rights in the Mediterranean Sea to uh, Lebanon with the idea that if you give Lebanon exploratory rights for oil and natural gas in the Mediterranean, and if they find it, they'll be wealthy and uh, they'll be so busy uh, drilling oil and extracting oil and gas from uh, the sea that they'll, they won't have enough time to bother with Israel. That, that, it just doesn't work that way. If we're going to have a, a solution, then the solution has to come because we need security and Hezbollah and Lebanon has absolutely no claims against us. Even if you want to say Gajar and Hardov, these are two tiny specks of land. This is not something that uh, you go to war over. So when it comes to this, Israel has to say, listen, we're not the aggressor. We're not looking to uh, capture Lebanon, but we feel they're trying to capture us and uh, the onus is on them to move back and the onus on the international community is to make them move back and to have an enforceable mechanism aside from UNIFIL forces that basically has their backs to Hezbollah and their fronts to Israel. You know, and I, I agree on that since it's, it's a joke, the idea, this, this idea that you can implicate Israel's enemies with a bit of guilt, it just doesn't work. Can we talk about, right, let me tell you about a bright spot just very briefly. We conclude with this, but it was actually on Friday night. It was literally a bright spot because I looked out, I looked out over Ramabit uh, Chemish, looking towards Gush Etzion. I saw two flares burning merrily in the sky and realized that, realized that there must be some, the army was looking for some people there in those, in the bandit country. Looking over to Gush Etzion, it's about 15 miles from Ramabit Chemish Aleph to, to Sevron, and it is a definitely dangerous area. My Tishanus found out that this was the, this, that the hunting for, for the, uh, after uh, a terror attack. In, in Adora, Adora is a place near Hebron, Yishuv. And indeed what happened there is that, is that, is that three terrorists got inside the teenagers, but that's very, very dangerous nonetheless, heavily armed automatic weapons, machetes, the whole lot, axes, and they were, they were quickly, because the, the, the perimeter fence, the uh, soldier got there, he was lightly wounded, but he managed to, they managed to kill them. And Emiliano, when I, when I, when I think about that, I say, look, we've got so much darkness around. We've got so much, so many difficulties. And so we've got you know, terror attacks and Jews are dying everywhere and such threat in a way that hasn't been seen for generations. Yet there is this, this, this bright spot because think about it. How many, how, how many, how many times have we, have, have things been averted? How many times has Hashem shown he's, he's stepping in and he's, he's looking after us. And in this place itself, they could have got, if, if, if these people could have gone on a October 7th style rampage around this, around this remote Yishuv and they were caught and killed. And that's what we say. Hello, Sashem Kol Gorim Ben We say it's the famously asked said that And the question is why? Why do the why do the nations of the world have to praise Hashem for for helping for God helping us? And the answer is 
because only they know how many times that they have tried to do things and failed. And that, that's, that's indeed uh, a dynamic that we see again and again at work in these days that, that despite all the, all the difficulties, all the trauma and all the sadness that, that we see in many instances of Hashem looking out in points of light, that's a bright spot for me. And as I go into the week ahead, that we should all be protected and, and have a good week. Been to you and to all the listeners.